everyone, and welcome back to People, Parasites, and Plagues, a podcast aimed at delivering information about the fascinating pathogens among us from the professionals who study them. I am Liliana Salvador. And I am David Peterson, your host for today's episode. On September 8th, 2020, a six-year-old boy died in Lake Jackson, Texas, after being diagnosed with primary amoebic meningoencephalitis, which we'll refer to from now on as PAM. This terrible disease is caused by an Aglaria fowleri, otherwise known as the brain-eating amoeba. Although cases of PAM are rare, the newest case has put many people on high alert. So should we be concerned about an outbreak? Our guest today is an esteemed researcher and professor of infectious diseases who can tell us all about what makes this disease so unsettling. Our guest today is Dr. Dennis Kyle, the director of the Center for Tropical and Emerging Global Diseases at the University of Georgia, and a faculty member in the Departments of Infectious Diseases and Cellular Biology. His areas of research include drug discovery for malaria and the brain-eating amoeba, and understanding how parasites become resistant to drugs. So Dennis, um, as the director of the Center for Tropical and Emerging Global Diseases, can you tell us a bit about the center and the research that goes on there? Sure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, the Center for Tropical and Emerging Global Diseases is a group of scientists that all work on one aspect of parasites or the diseases they cause or the vectors that actually transmit these diseases. We have 24 different faculty members as well as their groups that study parasites all the way from the basic molecular and cellular biology to field studies and pretty much addressing all different aspects of parasite biology and treatment and diagnosis, immunology, vaccines, and drugs. Dennis, and I know that one a part of your research in the center is, as, as we already introduced, is to study the brain-eating amoeba. What can you tell us about this organism? It's, it's an organism that Everybody remembers when they hear about it because brain-eating amoeba is something that the popular press has started, which I really didn't like at first, but then I realized it was actually an advantage because people really would pay attention and understand that this was a potential threat. These amoeba are related to several other pathogenic amoeba that can, basically they're free-living, they're ubiquitous in soil and water around the world. They're thermophilic, which means they actually like to live in warmer water or soil. And they can actually live at 115 degrees and, and actually do very well. So that's almost their optimum for their growth temperature. So these are organisms that are just out there. And for some reason that we don't understand, in the right situation, if this amoeba, Nagloria phalari, gets up your nasal passages and crosses across the epithelia, and goes into your brain, it can cause this fatal disease known as PAM. And can we find them in all parts of the country or just like specific states? Historically, most of the cases have happened in the southern tier of the United States. Florida, Texas, California have tended to have the most cases, but that's not necessarily where the only place we can find it. There have been several cases in Minnesota now. There have been cases in Europe in unchlorinated or poorly chlorinated pools. Uh, where it's freezing outside. I think it was Czechoslovakia, if I remember correctly, from many years ago. Wherever there's warm water that's not fully chlorinated, hot springs, pools, baths, those can all be sources of the amoeba. So Dennis, most cases seem to occur in the summer months. Does that have anything to do with this heat-loving nature of the amoeba? 
It, it actually does, David. They tend to proliferate high, at higher numbers in the summers. If we were to start doing testing in a water source that where amoeba are present, you would find some pretty much year-round, but the, the most thermophilic and the, the pathogenic amoeba, Negleria phalari, we find mostly in the warmest months. So really June through early September, we call amoeba season when we have to be on the lookout that this is when we could be infected. So of course we know that they uh, infect humans, but do they also infect any other animals? There are other animals that can be infected experimentally as well as, as naturally. We don't see as many cases in animals that you might expect with you know them uh, nosing around in the dirt or in, in the water, but there are cases of animals dying of uh, Negleria. So in a 56-year time span, the CDC has reported 145 cases, but only four people survived. Why is this amoeba so deadly? Uh, we wish we knew. We really do not understand why some people get it and others don't. This is one of the most common questions I get when I talk to family members of people who have passed from being infected. They just don't understand. And, and as scientists, we don't understand because, as, as I said, these are ubiquitous. And you can think of, you know, literally thousands of people in the same body of water over a period of a couple of weeks and one person gets infected. Why? that person and not anybody else. It's, it's really a mystery. And do, do we know if there are any differences in the cases that become fatal and those that do not? We don't have any differentiation of those that become fatal and those that don't. As you said, in the United States, there's only been four cases that have survived. Three of those are fully healthy and one had permanent neurological deficits after being infected, but we don't know of any differences in those cases versus the others. There's some thoughts about the treatment regimens, a new drug called miltefacine, which actually was a drug for cancer and then for a different parasite called leishmania, was found to have some activity in the laboratory test, and that has been used now. But at the same time, the two most recent cases, they've also been aggressively monitored for brain swelling. So the, they've lowered the body temperature down. So brain swelling, which seems to be one of the major uh, life-threatening pathologies, is actually reduced. So that may be contributing as much as the new drug. So Dennis, this amoeba almost seems like an accidental pathogen, given that it's usually free living and infection of the human host doesn't seem to contribute to the continued transmission of the organism. But is there anything in the amoeba's typical environment that in any way prepares it to infect a human host? Some people believe that this thermophilic nature may be one of the reasons why they can grow in, in a host, you know, at higher temperatures. We, we grow the amoeba in the laboratory from 33 to 37 degrees centigrade, which 37 is our body temperature. So they grow quite well at those temperatures. Maybe that's one of the reasons. I think it might be more than that because there are other thermal tolerant amoeba. As my PhD project many eons ago, I used to collect water and soil out of lakes in South Carolina. And I would get plenty of small free-living amoeba growing out at 44 degrees centigrade, which is around 114 degrees Fahrenheit. And not all of those are pathogenic. So there must be something else about Negleria phalari that allows it to actually cross the uh, epithelia and cause disease. So Dennis, one of the things I was really surprised to learn was that for 75% of people fatally infected with the amoeba, it's only diagnosed after they've died. So why is it so difficult to diagnose primary amoebic meningoencephalitis? Well, usually 
symptoms occur within one to nine days after being exposed with an average of around five days. And then the uh, the most severe symptoms start within the, a day to five days after that. So on, on average, the person will become sick, very ill and die within two weeks. The symptoms are very similar to viral or bacterial meningitis. So most physicians are looking out for those symptoms and doing all the, the appropriate follow-up. And it's usually a rarity when somebody actually looks for it, except in some of the Southern tier states now. And there was actually a, a training program established from one of the, the foundations, the Jordan Smelsky Foundation. They hold an amoeba day almost every year and they train some of the pathologists and then they knew to look for it. And the, one of the cases that survived that you mentioned actually was from that same hospital where the technician in the laboratory knew about the disease and went back and looked at cerebral spinal fluid and actually found an amoeba and found it before the person died. But you're right. Most of the time it's afterwards and it's because it's very late. They figure out what it might be just before the person dies or after. So what are the current diagnostics that you would employ on a patient suspected of having PAM? The most common one is anytime somebody has the symptoms of PAM, they're going to have increased the spinal pressure. So they're going to take cerebral spinal fluid to look at the pressure, to look for infiltrates, for white blood cells, et cetera. And they look at that on a slide as well. And that's the most common way it's diagnosed by actually seeing the amoeba. And they really have to know what they're looking at because it can almost look like a white blood cell. But, uh, you know, a trained pathologist can actually figure that out pretty quickly. There's also molecular tools like PCR that can be used on, the, on the, either the cerebral spinal fluid or a biopsy and antibodies that can also be used on the similar sorts of tissues. But there's nothing that seems to be rapid and accurate before very late stages of disease, unfortunately. Dennis, you already mentioned the use of drugs for treatment for patients that have PEM, but could you tell us a little bit more about how effective these treatments are or if there is any effective treatment for PEM? Well, you have to realize these are cases that don't happen very often. There's not been a dedicated effort to develop new drugs for this disease because of that. So the cocktail of drugs that are used are either antibiotics or antifungals, uh, like amphotericin B, which is an antifungal, fluconazole, rifampin, and a few other drugs, including the new drug nilstefacine, are used as a cocktail. And sort of what happened is empirically, when there was a survivor, then that cocktail became the new standard of therapy. And that keeps happening over and over again. And there really has not been great evidence for many of the drugs. In fact, a couple of years ago, one of my PhD students in the infectious disease program at UGA, Beatrice Cologne, and, and a postdoc in my lab, discovered that fluconazole, which was being used over and over again, actually had very little potency in the laboratory. It did not work in the animal model of disease. And we found a related drug that was actually very effective both in vitro and in, in, the, in the animal model. And that's an already approved drug called posiconazole. So CDC will possibly recommend that that be used in the next time that somebody has an infection along with the other cocktail. But again, it's all empirically based and there's not really great evidence because people have died with the same therapy as those couple of cases that have actually survived. So Dennis, your work on finding new drugs for PAM, I think is an example of repurposing drugs. 
maybe you could tell us a bit about what this means and what is the advantage of this sort of approach? Well, there are multiple ways you can find new drugs. One of the shortcuts to trying to go from looking to actually being able to use a drug is what we call repurposing. That's where a drug already has approved or maybe in late stages of development for another indication like cancer or another infectious disease. And we find that it can actually be used for nagliri as well. Flu, I mean, uh, posiconazole is a good example of that. That would be a repurposed drug. But we don't believe that that's the only approach. That's one approach we've done. We've tested literally thousands of compounds to identify some with potential. And we're working on, our, on an NIH grant right now to test some of those in the animal model to see if they have efficacy. But uh, at the same time, we recognize that we really need to find drugs that are specific for the amoeba. And so we've started working with a a group of colleagues around the country uh, on targets where we actually identify a protein target. We express it, purify it, crystallize it so we can basically do structure-based drug design around those targets. And that's one of the new avenues for nagleria is not new for drug discovery. It's been used for many years for cancer and other diseases. But it just shows you how far behind we are in the curve of trying to develop a new drug for this unfortunately almost uniformly fatal disease. I think you actually have answered my next question, but I will ask anyway. So how far away are we from interventions that better diagnose and even cure this disease? You know, that, that's, that's one of my goals. If there's any chance that we have to find a new drug that could help save the lives of these, these mostly young kids that die of the disease, that would be our goal. I, I don't know how close we are. We, we're excited about posiconazole because it was more active and more potent in both models than other drugs, but it still was not completely effective. And we just haven't found anything that's completely effective in the animal model yet. So that's our goal is to see if we can develop something or repurpose another drug to do that. So Dennis, I realize that none of us here are clinicians, but perhaps for Southern tier states in the summer, should PAM rise higher on the list of potential uh, causes of meningitis that are presented at hospital? Definitely. This is one of the efforts that I think the different foundations that have been found uh, set up by these families have been really effective. It's just amoeba awareness. You can look at amoebaawareness.com, the Jordan Smelsky Foundation and others. And it's one of the sayings they have is it's maybe 99% fatal, but it's 99% preventable if we just know about it. I mean, How many of us know not to walk out in a thunderstorm holding a golf club, right? We know that there's a a threat. If you know that there's potential for this fatal disease in the water, you can take precautions like not jumping in and getting water up your nose or having your young kids use nose clips and avoid situations where you could potentially get, uh, you know, unchlorinated water up your nose. And you could hopefully prevent prevent this disease. So awareness is really is it very important. And then secondly, as I mentioned in the case of that last survivor, it was because of there was awareness in the hospital and, and the physicians that they were in the amoeba season. The case presented itself in the similar way that they were actually able to early diagnose and save this 16-year-old boy's life. I want to point out that we'll put links to the uh, websites that Dennis just mentioned on our podcast webpage. 
Yeah, the, the Jordan Smelsky one is actually really good. There's a series of podcasts, interviews, information about the amoeba diagnosis, treatment, all of these sort of things. Dennis, I agree that awareness, it is really fundamental to try to avoid getting infected. But in general, how concerned sh should the public be about this pathogen? I, I think we, the public always draws their attention to the unusual or different and even infrequent diseases, you know, brain-eating amoeba is one of them. I think the, the statistics are you're 10,000 times more likely to drown in the summer than you are to get infected with Neglaria fowleri. But that doesn't mean it's completely negligible. And that I've heard people say that, don't worry, it's out there, but you don't have to worry. I think awareness is the key and knowledge so that you can prepare yourself or your family members for the situation and take the precautions that, that are actually pretty easy to do. So Dennis, seems that most of the cases come from natural water sources, but I believe I've read that a, a few cases have come from water supplies that are contaminated. Is that pretty rare? But how would people protect themselves from that? Well, the case that you mentioned at the very beginning in, in Texas, the most recent case, appears to be, they're still investigating, but it appears to be from commercial water source that was not properly chlorinated in one of those uh, parks where the water shoots up out of the ground. We think that's where he may have been infected by that water source. But just to show you that the number that we talked about earlier in a number of cases seems small, but in Karachi, Pakistan, there was a physician who knew about this disease who went back to Pakistan and started working in the hospital and started looking for this. And they've found anywhere from eight to 14 cases in a year uh, of this disease. And it wasn't reported before. And this is out of one hospital. And in this case, it's another water source. And we think that most of these are men that are going to the mosque and doing this ritual ablution ceremony where they use water to cleanse their body. And some of them forcibly put water up their nose. And this is how they're becoming infected. So most water sources in the United States should be safe in your home because they're chlorinated. But if they're not and they're heated, then there is a chance that you could have amoeba in, in the water. So Dennis, there are a few people that, especially if they suffer from allergies, that they use nasal cavity cleaning systems, such as the nettle pod and the navage systems. What can they do to prevent a pathogen from getting in from and infecting their body? I first learned about a neti pot when my PhD advisor and I started formulating a research study plan, and she had these allergies and she had used nasal irrigation for many years and it worked really well for her. She actually stopped for a while because of knowledge of the amoeba. But my, my understanding is it's actually very safe if you can use, you know, boiled water, sterilized water sources, then it should still be safe. But I, I would be very cautious about using those systems unless they're thoroughly cleaned for obvious reasons. Great. Thank you. So once again, our guest today has been Dr. Dennis Kyle from the UGA Center for Tropical and Emerging Global Diseases. Dennis, thanks for being with us today. Well, thanks for bringing more attention to this often underreported and neglected disease. Links to additional information about Dr. Kyle's research can be found at our website at fid.uga.edu ppp. Thank you for tuning in today. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us via email at ppp at uga.edu.
This podcast is brought to you by the Faculty of Infectious Diseases and the Grady College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. It is supported by the University of Georgia through the Office of the Vice President for Research and the College of Veterinary Medicine. Hi.